afternoon. This is the November 18th edition of the Global News Review from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan and I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Hiya. Hi, Pat. Glad to see uh, everyone here today. We, uh, we had a, a great show last week with uh, guest host Tim Douglas. We thank Tim for, uh, for joining us. Uh, he uh, talked about Bolivia and uh, we had a, a great conversation including a little excursion into uh, the international nature of the Masters golf tournament. Uh, I don't think, uh, Breck, I don't know if you followed that. I, I missed it this weekend, but uh, I'm not sure if, an, if a global player won uh, the tournament or an American guy. No, Dustin Johnson won, who's an American guy whose fiance is Wayne Gretzky's daughter. And Dustin Johnson is the number one ranked golfer in the world. So he, 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 he played like it. Wayne Gretzky. Well, there's a there's an international connection there. That's right. Um, and uh, before we get uh, in, into our news review today, I, I wanted to mention we're we're hearing very good news about uh, vaccines for COVID, and and we'll be talking about that in coming weeks. What the prospects are, and we've talked in the past about the international nature of the distribution mm -hmm. of vaccines. Uh, now that uh, it looks like we're on the doorstep uh, to uh, to getting those out to people. Um, but I suppose we need to all continue to keep up the good work on hygiene, masks and distance and avoiding social gatherings and all that. I know Ambassador Bowers is as scrupulous on those things as, as anybody could possibly be. Um, let's, uh, let's start uh, off today with uh, our quiz question. And uh, uh, Brecht, if you want to, uh, to take that. Sure, Pat. Uh, this week's uh, U.S. Institute of Peace question of the week is uh, the following. The rapidity of the escalation of violence between uh, Tigray and Addis Ababa is concerning, it's, it's concerning in itself given the stakes for this country's peace and stability. This conflict has the potential to quickly become more, more polarized and increase violence throughout society and the, uh, what country is this? And the possible answers are A, Eritrea, B, Ethiopia, C, Sudan, and D, Somalia. And we'll talk about the answer to that at the end of the program. Terrific. Let's, um, let's jump right in with our, our first topic. Uh, actually, uh, I don't want to shortcut the ambassador. Uh, Dick, if you want to read uh, our topics for the week and then we'll get going. Sure, because you've got a word in there that I think is kind of cool. So the first topic is going to be the White House transition, global reactions, and jiggery-pokery. So Pat will explain what jiggery-pokery <laughs> is all about. Second, it's, there's been a massive mammoth Asia-Pacific trade deal, and America is on the outside of it, looking in. And Breck is going to talk about that. And then Peru has had some presidency problems, musical chairs in Lima. And I'll take that one. Okay. Great. Uh, well, let's uh, let's take a look at um, the uh, the global reactions and, and the this new word that we're fond of jiggery pokery. We can actually thank Ambassador Thomas Pickering for that when he was uh, in our webinar of the election 2020 conversation America, about America's place in the world. He shared that word, and uh, I looked it up, and sure enough, it's uh, it's in a dictionary, and it basically means shenanigans. So we're uh, looking at some of the shenanigans going on in in this uh, transitional period. Uh, two things that I want to note uh, at the, uh, the start here. First, 
the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan organization and we do not support political agendas. Uh, second, uh, global developments frequently overlap with US domestic politics. It's difficult to say the word uh, Trump without uh, someone thinking that you're about to say something on one side or the other. But uh, we don't want to avoid addressing uh, these uh, important international and national security issues. Uh, they're important understanding uh, America's position and, and role in the world. Um, so let's, uh, uh, let's uh, take a look at, uh, at the topic. Uh, we're gonna briefly go through um, a few aspects of the transition and uh, basically uh, the stalemate in the government which is affecting national security and the preparations of the uh, incoming uh, Biden team. Uh, the GSA is the key institution there. And uh, a couple of the uh, implications are in the area of COVID, which is a national security threat. Uh, the global pandemic affects uh, many aspects of our foreign policy, uh, as well as our domestic security. And it's also affecting uh, another key aspect of government governance and that's intelligence for the, uh, the new team. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Pentagon, uh, the personnel changes, the uh, troop withdrawals, and uh, uh, turn to the uh, maximum pressure campaign on, uh, on Iran and the effect overseas and the uh, uh, American uh, sharing of uh, democratic uh, values. Uh, we talked last week a little bit about uh, the reaction around the world to uh, the election of President Biden. And uh, we're gonna get into some more of that uh, in, in the coming weeks as, uh, as the transition rolls out. But what we wanted to cover today are, are basically the, uh, the implications of uh, what's going on in the tran uh, transition. And um, uh, as, uh, as widely reported, uh, it's uh, the control of the GSA administrator, in this case, Emily Murphy, to give the green light for support to the president-elect and his team. That includes security clearances to access critical information, uh, the spaces to operate the transition team in Washington, and uh, budget to cover transition expenses. And also the green light for the uh, incoming teams to, uh, to deploy around the government to coordinate with the, uh, the current uh, Trump administration officials, uh, and Ms. Ms. Murphy has yet to turn on the support. There are still some court cases going on, but uh, even as uh, many uh, in the Republican side have said, it's it's time to uh, to move on. Uh, Senator James Lankford last week said that if the uh, uh, the green light wasn't given, he was going to get involved, but then he walked that back a little bit. But I think uh, it's it's uh, everyone is in agreement that. Uh, the, uh, the Biden administration needs to get the intelligence briefs, needs to get uh, coordination with the COVID-19 team uh, in place and, uh, and move on. Uh, so where does that hurt national security the most uh, in the area of COVID-19, the development and distribution of uh, vaccines, uh, preparation to get uh, that distribution moving along as quickly and as efficiently as, as possible. And also the need to have a seamless handoff to deal with the public health catastrophe. In the area of uh, intelligence, uh, valuable time is being lost for the incoming national security team to get up to speed on worldwide threats, operations underway by the US, clandestine programs, and the myriad tasks that will have to be accomplished uh, on day one when the uh, Biden administration uh, takes office. 
in the uh, the area of the, the Pentagon and other national security aspects of the transition. Uh, we've seen uh, a shuffling at the top, uh, the leadership by uh, President Trump. Uh, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, uh, was uh, fired in a tweet uh, from the president. And we know that um, uh, Esper was, um, was reluctant to deploy active duty military troops against uh, protesters in Washington uh, a couple of months ago, and that uh, reportedly angered uh, President Trump. He also pushed back against the precipitous troop drawdowns from Afghanistan and Iraq and against military strikes uh, against Iran. And we're seeing that uh, unfolding this week uh, with his replacement. So on, on November 9th, uh, uh, President Trump uh, fired uh, uh, Esper summarily uh, via uh, tweet. Uh, Esper has been replaced by uh, Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller, and he uh, formerly was the head of the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, uh, a recent addition to that uh, position. But he's also had in his background the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. He's uh, a retired uh, U.S. Army Colonel who was in the Special Forces, so he's got experience in the military, but uh, he's been widely uh, criticized as not really having the background to prepare him uh, to run the, uh, the Pentagon. Uh, in addition to firing Esper and moving in Miller, um, the president also fired uh, Mark Tom, the deputy chief of staff uh, to the undersecretary of defense for policy. So this is the, the primary policy position um, in, the, uh, uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, also fired in that action was James Anderson, the uh, acting policy chief. So the two, two top people responsible for policy in the Pentagon uh, were out and uh, a, a spokesman within the, the government said that the president is taking back control of DOD, that it's a rebirth of foreign policy. This is Trump foreign policy. And uh, the, uh, the individual didn't, uh, was spoke anonymously with the press. Uh, the, the personnel changes he, uh, he claimed would clear the way for a more loyal Pentagon apparatus to carry out Trump's goals, including the last minute withdrawal of troops from foreign conflicts. Well, the, the president has the authority to uh, do whatever he wants in the Pentagon and uh, firing Esper and the, the policy staff um, seems to have simply been uh, to uh, make sure that there was no pushback against what, uh, what he intended to do in his last two months uh, in office. Uh, the, those explanations are at odds with the uh, explanation or comments uh, around Washington that the moves were uh, designed primarily to punish, punish dissent uh, in the Pentagon. So uh, in place of the, uh, the policy people in the Pentagon, uh, they announced uh, that Mr. Anthony Tata uh, is uh, being put in place as the uh, acting uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. So he is now uh, in position to uh, uh, take that uh, role as the principal policy uh, individual. The, normally the deputy would have moved up, but uh, he was fired as well. So uh, Anthony Tata, a former army brigadier general who uh, became a novelist and then a Fox News commentator is now the policy chief of the Pentagon. Um, he was criticized uh, previously for some of his um, positions, including uh, certain comments that were labeled Islamophobic uh, when he was up for 
um, approval by the Senate Armed Services Committee for the position that he's now been moved into in an acting role. Uh, he's uh, known to have uh, pushed conspiracy theories on Twitter that former CIA Director John Brennan sought to overthrow Trump and even to have him assassinated. So he's uh, a colorful guy and he's now the principal um, policy chief uh, in the Pentagon. Elsewhere in government, uh, the, uh, the uh, president announced uh, the firing of uh, Christopher Krebs, who was the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and directly tied it to uh, Krebs' statement uh, that uh, there were uh, no infractions in the election and reports um, of uh, uh, fraud allegations were, uh, were untrue. And uh, President Trump had, had previously uh, tweet, tweeted that uh, those allegations were wrong. And then uh, in his uh, in Krebs firing by tweet, uh, the president repeated that uh, there were widespread uh, fraudulent activities in, in the election. So uh, continuing intrigue on the, the personnel front uh, in terms of what's going on with the transition and the, uh, the final days of the Trump administration. The, uh, the other concern is uh, reports that uh, President Trump uh, asked uh, what his options were for attacking Iran and its uh, a nuclear program. Uh, there was a report that Iran continues to uh, compile fissile material. And uh, this is in violation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, also known as the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, President Trump removed the United States from that agreement in 2018. And since then, uh, the United States has instituted what's been called a maximum pressure campaign against Iran. So Iran in response to that has been violating the limits on their uh, compiling fissile material. And that was recently reported. Uh, so the president uh, talked to his advisors about uh, attacking an Iranian uh, nuclear facility. And, and that raised uh, concerns uh, at the Pentagon uh, that uh, there could be uh, the U.S. could be drawn into a wider war in response to, uh, to that attack. And you may remember, um, Dick and Breck, that uh, back in January, the United States uh, killed uh, Qasem Soleimani, who is the, was the head of the Republican Guard Force. And Iran uh, didn't hesitate to respond to that provocation by uh, launching surface-to-surface -surface missiles at bases in Iraq where U.S. personnel were stationed and some hundred uh, plus uh, Americans were, uh, were injured um, in that activity. Uh, lastly, I, I would just comment that uh, uh, the United States is, uh, is not showing its best face in how our democratic uh, systems are operating. And the, uh, the State Department and other organs of the government have long since uh, pushed the democratic values around the world. We've monitored elections around the world. And uh, this uh, is kind of hollowing out uh, that policy of supporting democracy around the world when we apparently have so many difficulties associated with, uh, with our presidential elections and the transition of power uh, peacefully as has been a, a hallmark uh, of the United States. So uh, a lot to chew on there. Um, I hope I didn't take too much of our, our time, fellas, but uh, I welcome uh, your observations on what's going on with the transition 
the holdup and uh, getting the Biden team in place, um, the jiggery pokery in, in the Pentagon and, uh, and our impact around the world, including the, the situation vis-a-vis -vis Iran and other potential hotspots. Hey, well, Pat, I wanted to say one. I just wanted to say one thing. Uh, maybe it would be uh, for next week, but I'd like to look and have us look into the etymology of jiggery pokery and find out exactly where that comes from. Uh, but you know, one thing that I thought was interesting is, of course, Trump was thinking about, uh, but hasn't yet fired uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, or Gina Haspel, the CIA director. And I'm wondering if that may be in part because. Uh, you know, he's accepting his defeat at the end of the day uh, in his own mind, and maybe he is positioning himself to run in 2024, and he is thinking about what would be considered a political misstep in that regard. Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a thought about that? Uh, no, the ambassador is shaking his head. Go ahead, Dick. No, I, I think, you know, Trump uh, is a wily character, and uh, he's going to try to figure out what's best for him. And the idea that he could change some uh, political comeback down the road. Um, but he also, part of his character is that he's a very vindictive person. And, you know, somebody sort of in his mind crosses him, doesn't show loyalty, he will lash out and try to do everything to destroy that individual. So there's a balance between how does he set himself up for a political career in 2024 with. I'm not going to take it from these guys that are starting to leave the ship and leave me alone in this activity. But I, I you know, I, I would hope that the, some of the better angels of, of Mr. Trump and his uh, colleagues would say hey, the, the country deserves a good transition, as, better, as good as we can get, and would get on with it and tell the lady who was running the GSA to pull the plug and what's the... There's a word that they use, the you know, certification. Ascertain. Yeah, and, and issue that and let the Trump, let the Biden people go to work. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, in terms of the transition, there was a criticism in the 9-11 report that the transition in 2000, the election of 2000, uh, was a, a factor in the Bush administration not being prepared to analyze and uh, assess and deal with uh, the growing threat from Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, and you may—I uh, know you guys remember that. Uh, but the, but the big the difference in that. Yeah, big go difference ahead, in that, Pat, was the that it was not known who won the election. There was no doubt who won the election now. And, right. It, uh, was, it wasn't. It, it wasn't motivated uh, maliciously. No, it was just. It the, was, it we was, don't. It we're was not the, sure who won, and it wasn't yeah, until, it was, until the, the final decision of the court got involved because it was one state, Florida, that could have tipped the balance one way or the other. Right, so th this is a different situation in terms of motivation to hold up the transition, but uh, it, it's illustrative to consider the impact on yeah. a new administration from not having uh, this full time. And if you consider the amount of time that, that people have to get from election day to inauguration, with the complexity, the increasing complexity of the United States government, domestic affairs in the middle of a pandemic and uh, also the uh, you know the international scene is not hitting the pause button and a lot of these actors out there are taking advantage of this gap between uh, apparently there are, you know the reports are that President Trump 
is doing little in uh, in terms of his day-to-day -day work uh, workload and carrying out his duties. So um, the next two months are, are, are a perilous time for our national security. You're right. Okay, let's talk about uh, a another important topic um, with uh, Breck taking the lead. Uh, Dr. Walker, you're going to talk with with us about the uh, the uh, economic uh, partnership, the uh, RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in uh, in Asia, and the floor is yours, sir. Uh, thanks, Pat. Um, well, Pat and Dick, uh, the largest free trade area in the world came into existence last weekend, spearheaded by China. The U.S. wasn't a part of it. We weren't invited to be a part of it. In fact, it's the first time in the post-war period that the United States has not been at the center of a major global free trade agreement. And it brings to mind, what's the phrase, if pigs could fly? Well, the pigs are flying right now. On Sunday, 15 countries in the Asia-Pacific region completed negotiations that began way back in 2012, and they signed a trade agreement that encompassed over 2 billion people and uh, represents about one-third of the world economy. Now, the signatories are Australia, China, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, and then the 10 uh, ASEAN countries, which I'll just run through them quickly, and there may be a slide in there as well, but Singapore, uh, Brunei, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar. Now, the pact uh, is meant to reduce trade barriers and make it easier for these regional neighbors to do, uh, to do business with one another. Now, I don't want to, to uh, and the pact is called uh, the RCEP. I don't want to overstate the significance of this agreement. I mean, lots of folks out there are saying that the agreement is more smoke than fire, that it's more symbolic than substantive, that it doesn't cut tariffs all that much, at least initially, uh, that it's, it doesn't cover most agricultural products, for example. It does not mandate common labor or environmental standards as some of the other major trade agreements have. And you know those uh, folks who think it, think that it's more symbolic think that it's kind of a tidying up, that it's bringing these various bilateral free trade agreements that uh, these uh, 15 nations have, that it's bringing these agreements under one sort of overarching uh, agreement. And as well, uh, nine of the 15 nations, their legislatures are going to have to ratify the agreement before it takes effect, and that you know that may take some time. However, lots of others think that this agreement is another example of China on the rise in that region and the US on the decline in terms of regional influence, that the agreement is going to serve as a building block in a new world order for Asia where China uh, is gonna be calling the shots. There's a senior, uh, a quote from one senior EU lawmaker, uh, and this is the quote, the European Union and the US should see the new Asia Pacific Trade Pact as a wake up call for joint action against the growing influence of China. And The Economist magazine said, the, the trade pact more closely ties the economic fortunes of the signatory uh, countries to that of China and will over time pull these countries deeper into the economic and political orbit of China. So this, this agreement marks the first multilateral trade deal for China it marks the first bilateral tariff reduction arrangement between Japan and China, 
And it's the first time that China, Japan, and South Korea have been in a single free trade agreement. So this is crossed uh, and broken through a lot of uh, lines here in terms of uh, trade arrangements between uh, Asian Pacific countries. The biggest immediate the, big the biggest immediate impact is probably going to be on supply chains because one thing the agreement definitely does is it allows uh, uh, products that have parts from different countries. It cuts through a lot of the red tape and does cut down tariff and custom time on those situations. So it's really going to be an incentive for companies that are using supply chains to manufacture products to use countries that are part of this trade pack because they avoid a lot of red tape and lower customs duties and the like uh, as a result of doing that. But uh, in all events, most people do think that the RCEP, this trade agreement, will accelerate a shift in global trade toward East Asia and away uh, from the West. Now, why would our allies, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, serious allies that we have treaties with, why would they join up for this? And uh, the answer is, uh, and I'm certainly not the only one that thinks this, but the answer is, there was really no other good alternative. The United States decided not to participate in a competing free trade agreement, which would have excluded China, at least for a time, and would have made China conform to common standards on the labor and environmental front if they had later decided to join at some point. And maybe just a very brief little history here will bring this uh, into focus. Towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, was negotiated. And it was going to be, or was, a free agreement, a free trade agreement among 11 Pacific Rim economies and the United States. And I think we have a slide showing who the uh, uh, participants in the TPP were. Uh, this, the TPP was supposed to be an alternative to this free trade region that is uh, now anchored by China. However, TPP pushed by the Obama administration uh, and signed, but signed by the United States, but needing legislative approval, the TPP became a political football in the 2016 election, and both President Trump and Hillary Clinton opposed it, and so it never went before uh, Congress after Trump was uh, elected. Now, the remaining members, minus the U.S. Uh, of the TPP, went on to form something called the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or more simply known as CPTPP, but uh, it failed, obviously, to include the two biggest economies in the world, the United States uh, and China. Alongside of that, the Trump administration began pursuing this protectionist trade policy uh, that was based on uh, you know, bilateral negotiations, and he was uh, often used tariffs and other trade barriers to, uh, as, a, as a negotiating tactic. Uh, and under these circumstances, uh, these Asian nations saw benefit in joining the Chinese free trade deal, the RCEP. And so how does China benefit from this? Well, there's, there's economic benefit to China and to these other nations that have, always, that, is also, that have also joined the RCEP. There's economic benefit, though, to China that likely will lead to geopolitical advantage. Uh, and meaning that if South Korea and Japan are, uh, and maybe even Australia are doing well uh, trading with the countries within the RCEP, that undoubtedly, uh, well, uh, it could weaken our, our alliances and relations uh, over time. Uh, in the first half of the year, 
ASEAN took, to, uh, overtook the European Union as China's biggest trading partner, and the RCEP will uh, accelerate that. And then this agreement also gives uh, a propaganda benefit to China in that China can now claim in its region that they are more committed to free trade than the United States is. And, and free trade is the lifeblood of Asian economies. Uh, the Chinese prime minister said, quote, the RCP, RCEP is a victory of multilateralism and free trade and a ray of light and hope amid the clouds. So the Biden administration is going to have to going to have a decision to make. Their uh, uh, ASEAN members are concerned about Chinese domination in the region, region, and many of those members hope that the Biden administration will re-engage on some basis. Obama, President Obama, pursued the TPT, uh, TPP doggedly uh, in hopes of asserting or continuing to assert a, a U.S. economic presence in the region but uh, offsetting the hope that Biden, the Biden administration will re-engage, I suspect is the fear that the US is no longer a consistent ally or friend. Uh, that in, in its big picture policies uh, and particularly trade and security with and for allies that, uh, uh, that we're no longer consistent in that regard. Uh, China now supports free trade while the U.S. has adopted a, an in quotations mark, fair trade strategy in a region fully supportive of free trade and very suspicious of protectionist tactics such as tariffs. And Americans may secure economic benefits in the near term uh, following this diplomatic strategy, but I think that there will be a price to pay in terms of uh, influence. And Trump's team is saying, of course, that he's going to run again in 2024. So it will be no easy task for a Biden administration to get South Korea, Japan, Australia, much less the ASEAN nations to unite against China if China can, uh, plays its cards right. So, Pat, I'll stop there. Hope I didn't run over. No, no, that was, that was terrific. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Brick. Uh, I think this is uh, an important development in uh, our economic uh, global economic situation. And it really has been overshadowed uh, by other reports, uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, et cetera. So I don't think uh, very many Americans really have uh, appreciated what's going on in trade. We're, we're losing ground in our relationship with, uh, with Asian Pacific countries. And uh, you know, there's, these are important signals being sent. Um, I think you pointed out there's, there's a marginal benefit to this trade pact. Uh, but uh, the, the political benefit accruing to China by these these relations in the United States, uh, frankly, shooting itself in the foot with the TPP, it be, it became a political football that nobody really understood what was involved. But uh, most analysts saw it as uh, really beneficial to the United States. It it uh, gave the U.S. All, almost all of the bargaining positions that were asked for, given our economic dominance. But uh, it kept China out of that pact, and, and we were in. So we've got uh, work to do, mending the relationships uh, with our, our East Asian and, and Pacific uh, friends. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what strategy uh, China has going forward, because as we were talking about before the program got underway, they've been very aggressive in, in territorial matters in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And that has certainly provoked serious security concerns. And Pat, you mentioned that uh, Japan and Australia have entered into a historic uh, defense pact recently because of those security concerns. 
But if China decides that it's going to use soft power going forward and lightens up on the territorial ambitions, and it may not do that, but it's got a real advantage here that uh, I think will uh, result in geopolitical benefits to them and greater influence in the region if they can just tone down the, the military aspects of things. But maybe that's not in their DNA. So how how would the U.S. go about reengaging uh, in this in this area with these countries now having signed the agreement uh, with China in the lead? So Mr. Biden, who I think is a an internationalist and believes in free and fair trade, how would the U.S. resurrect the TPP? Now, the TPP is still, uh, now it's called uh, the CPTPP, but right. it's still in existence with the other nations. So we would and, just adhere to it? Well, or join it. And again, yeah. that would be a politically, uh, that would be a politically uh, gutsy thing, I suspect, for the Biden administration to do. But that would, there are many people and and some uh, Asian nations hoping that the Biden administration will re-up and uh, give serious thought to rejoining. Well, Pat, yeah, your the, point uh, about being a political football when, when it was out there, I mean, this really presaged, I think our president is a master at being able to take issues and politicize them and polarize them to a point where, you know, he, he can rally many of his supporters to go out and say this is a horrible deal, kind of like face masks, which to me are as apolitical as you could get, but it's uh, turned out otherwise right now, so. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think the uh, the death of the TPP was the 2016 election. It was it was a football that uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton uh, couldn't even resist uh, yeah. the impact, the political impact of, uh, of saying that this was not in America's interest. There was, a lot of pressure from uh, trade groups and uh, uh, man manufacturing and unions, et cetera. And just to sort out some of the uh, acronym soup here for our friends, uh, TPP was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And when we uh, bowed out of that, the uh, remaining partners uh, signed what was called the CPTPP. Uh, and that is uh, that translates to Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. So it uh, basically uh, latched on to all of the negotiations that had previously been done and, and uh, joined them together. It, largely, I think, with the, the leadership of uh, Japan in, in getting that, that done. Um, and it, it gave concrete advantage to, uh, to those countries, but the United States was sitting on the outside looking in. And again, just it's such a reverse for the United States to be in a protectionist mode, at least under the Trump administration, and for China all of a sudden to be recognized by its neighbors as, uh, at least economically speaking, a little bit of a beacon of light supporting free trade. And what happened yeah. to the free trading Republican Party? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing that happened to the Republican Party. It's not there anymore, except Jiggery in pokery. Jiggery pokery. <laughs> Well, the, uh, I think, uh, Breck, you, you mentioned the uh, defense agreement between Japan and Australia, and that, that is an important move. You know, we talked about yeah. uh, the, the quad, the quadrilateral agreement uh, between India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. And a component of that now is this agreement between Japan and Australia, where Australian forces can use uh, uh, naval bases in Japan uh, for their uh, ships and uh, supplies and uh, rest stops, et cetera. 
so that's that's an important development in the expansion of this quadrilateral uh, agreement. So there's a lot going on in the Pacific. Um, I hope that we'll uh, be able to bring more of it to uh, to our friends here because it is uh, significant to American uh, security and, and prosperity. <clears throat> Jiggery pokery. I've had, all I've had all the acronyms I can stand for the day, though, I think. Okay, well, the, the, the big one this week was RCEP. So thanks, thanks, Brett, <laughs> for, uh, for sharing with that. Maybe SOS, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador Bowers, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Peru. Peru. Um, si, senor, el Peru. And over to you. Okay, well, there's a lot of uh, political instability going on in Peru these days. Uh, over a week ago, the Peruvian Congress removed the popular presidential incumbent, a guy named Martin Vizcarra, and they did so by using an archaic constitutional clause uh, that allows the Congress to declare the president, quote, morally incapable to lead the nation. Now, I'm, that's just in Peru that they have that clause, but I don't think uh, other countries do. Well, it then went on to shock the nation last Tuesday, a week ago, by swearing in the head of Congress, a man named Martin Merino, to replace him. Now, these moves triggered massive demonstrations throughout the country, led mostly by younger Peruvians who saw Congress's actions as a ruthless power grab by lawmakers. And then the police hard-handed response to the protesters, including the heavy use of tear gas and rubber bullets at close range, only deepened the discontent. And by last week, the New York, last weekend, the New York Times had reported that 41 people had, quote, gone missing during the protests and 112 had been wounded and several deaths were confirmed also. Then two days ago on Sunday, after most of his cabinet had resigned, the interim president, Mr. Marino, after only six days on the job, had had enough and announced his irrevocable resignations. So Peruvians woke up yesterday, Monday morning, without a president and braced for the prospect of living under a fifth president in but five years. Later that same day, the Congress announced the appointment of that new president, the first term member of Congress, 76-year-old Francisco Sagasti, who has the distinction of becoming the third president in but one week of political turmoil in Peru. So what's going on in Peru to cause all this political unrest? Well, early last year, um, Peru looked like it had turned a corner. Thrust into office when political scandal toppled then-President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski in 2018, Mr. Vizcarra responded with straight talk and a sweeping reform agenda and promptly soared in the polls. Uh, despite the political roller coaster that was going on, the economy remained remarkably stable and unscathed. Millions of Peruvians were being lifted out of poverty through years of economic growth, fueled primarily by mining and agricultural experts. And Peru really was a rare bright spot in a mostly stagnating Latin America. But then the coronavirus hit. And President that time, Vizcarra, ordered one of Latin America's first and strictest lockdowns. He also rolled out one of the region's biggest economic aid package, packages to help citizens stay at home and social distance. 
but it did not work. And Peru, a country of 33 million people, has been devastated by the coronavirus with one of the world's highest disease mortality rates, a projected 14% drop in gross domestic product with spiking debt and a fiscal sinkhole. Despite massive energy stimulus, poverty in Peru could reach 30% this year. So my take is Peru's crisis traces to uh, small bore ambitions of the current unicameral Congress, which has splintered into nine parties, none of which garnered more than 11% of the popular vote in the last election. And many in that Congress really owe their seats to Mr. Vizcarra because after clashing repeatedly with obstructionist lawmakers last year, he dissolved the Congress in September 2019 and called new elections. The new Congress, seated in January 2020, promptly turned on him. And now the streets have turned on his short-lived successor, Mr. Marino. So where does all this leave us? Um, it leaves us with major political form being needed, including the establishment of vibrant, functioning, and capable political parties, which Peru does not have. And it also has massive corruption. Uh, I think something like 68 of the 130 legislatures, legislators in the Congress are under investigation for either criminal activity, corruption, or doing things they shouldn't be doing. So in the meantime, uh, late Sunday night, Mr. Viscara added to the turmoil by claiming that the current Congress, Congress, which has the authority under the constitution to appoint the next president, he says that this Congress is too discredited to select Mr. Marino's replacement. And he's asked the nation's top court to weigh in on the legality of his removal, a move that he could potentially use to stage a political comeback. So stay tuned. I predict in the short run, more turmoil and instability. And in the long run, who knows? Questions? Okay, uh, Dick, the, the so what question. Uh, what's, what's the impact on relationships with the uh, the United States from Peru. Uh, I think we're concerned about the preservation of democracy, the, the stability of countries in, uh, in Latin America. Did anything else come to mind about uh, our well, I think there? to a certain extent, uh, certainly for the last four years, Latin America has been ignored, except for the possibility of maybe looking once in a while at Cuba and Venezuela and shaking a big stick at them. But otherwise, our policies have been uh, benign at best and just totally indifferent. Uh, I think we need to re-engage in Latin America again and, and start standing up for the things that our country used to stand up for, the rule of law, democracy, proper fiscal policies, things of that sort. Well, we had a brief last week from uh, Tim Douglas on Bolivia and the, uh, the return of socialism to Bolivia. So that's uh, interesting development in, in a continent that had largely gone in the other direction. Yeah, but, you know, these words, um, one of the problems we have is that we don't have common understanding of what these words mean. What, what, is, what is Bolivian socialism? Bolivian socialism is capitalism, but with a heavy, heavy uh, dose 
of taking care of the population, of using government to uplift the, the poor people of the country. It is not classic socialism where we pool all of our resources and give to everybody, and it's certainly not communism. Sure. Evo Morales is basically discredited. I don't know if that came out in your discussion last week, but he's he'll come back and play a minor role, but he overplayed his hand, so he's gonna kind of be gone. In Peru, um, it's a little bit like many people in the United States voted for Joe Biden because they didn't want Donald Trump. And many people may have voted for Donald Trump because they didn't want Joe Biden. So you kind of kind of, there was a Bolivian, uh, sorry, Peruvian president, Fujimori, who overplayed his hand by trying to stay around for a third five-year term and was finally kicked out. But Peru has a history of changing presidents very quickly. And that's basically because the political instability of not having any institutionalized party. So every time there's an election, there's a different party that shows up, people adhere to that party, and then they immediately dissolve it and go away. So there's no real kind of institutional loyalty to the political and democratic process. Yeah, wasn't uh, wasn't Fujimori uh, deposed and uh, imprisoned or charged with uh, high crimes? He was, and uh, he, he was he went to Japan, and his daughter was was active in in recent years in 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 Peru, in the political scene. But Fujimori is gone, and then Alan Garcia, who was the president in 2018, I believe, he was about to get arrested and the police were coming to get him and he committed suicide because of his corruption and not willing to stand up and be, take the medicine for his deeds. So it's an interesting place. Yes, uh, to be sure. Um, well, uh, I think uh, we will hopefully keep more attention to uh, the situation in Latin America because it is important, and, and as you note, um, we uh, we seem to be confined with our relationship with um, Cuba and, and Venezuela. Yeah. And despite the uh, the bluster uh, a year ago in in doing something about Venezuela, uh, the situation has not gotten any better, and the exodus of Venezuelans uh, continues to be a uh, crisis situation for many of its neighbors. All right, um, I don't see any questions from our attendees, so we will, <clears throat> excuse me, move on to our closing uh, question of the week answer. And uh, Breck, you want to uh, illuminate us on, on this, this topic that you discussed in great detail, the, the situation in Tigray? Right, the, the question was again, which uh, country that has as its capital Addis Ababa is uh, sending military forces into its northern region of Tigray in an escalating, I guess you'd have to call it more than a conflict at this point. Uh, and the answer is B, Ethiopia, which we did talk about last week or the week before. Terrific, uh, thanks uh, for that. Just a reminder that uh, if you uh, wanna get the quiz every Monday morning, uh, sign up for the newsletter at tnwac.org. And while you're there, become a member of the World Affairs Council. Uh, that's how we uh, afford uh, Ambassador Bauer's uh, um, bespoke uh, outfits that he, he wears on, on our programs. 
Um, but uh, seriously, if, if you're a supporter of global awareness, education in our schools and in our community, we appreciate you becoming a member of the World Affairs Council or making a financial gift. Uh, let me note that uh, next week, we will not be uh, here. We will be observing Thanksgiving Eve. So the next uh, Global News Review will be on uh, December the 2nd, I believe that is. Uh, Wednesday of that week at 1 p.m. we'll be back. And I remind you that uh, you can sign up for that uh, now. It's uh, on our calendar, tnwac.org slash calendar. And you can also register for a special program we have coming up on the 75th anniversary of the United Nations called UN 75, The Journey Continues. Ambassador Thomas Pickering, who shared with us jiggery pokery, uh, will be uh, the keynote uh, speaker. And we will also have uh, a panel, including the former French ambassador to the United States, Gerard Arrow, who was the permanent representative of France to the United Nations, uh, as was Ambassador Pickering on behalf of the United States. So uh, we'll have some other panelists, including the chief archivist from the Truman Library to talk about the origins of the United Nations and uh, some other panelists. But uh, please take a look at the calendar to uh, see more about the background of those uh, individuals. And that will be a great program on December 9th. And you can sign up for that now. And just uh, keep on your calendar. January 28th, we'll have a special global town hall on US-Korea relations. And of course, you uh, can tune in uh, on Tuesday evenings for uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean. Uh, he'll be talking with the Chief Operating Officer of Alliance Bernstein on uh, December the 8th. So take a look at the calendar and uh, please uh, continue to uh, enjoy these broadcasts. Uh, we are pleased to bring them to you. And um, Dick, Breck, any closing comments? Breck, did you I mean, look up jiggery pokery? I, I will look it up. I'll be ready no, for okay. it the week after next. That'll probably draw a bigger audience. But happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, indeed. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And, and to all, please be safe. Uh, there's some special advisories out about the uh, gathering. So uh, use uh, your best judgment in observing yeah. the public health uh, warnings and, uh, and do have a safe Thanksgiving. Gentlemen, um, great program. Thanks for your insights and perspectives and uh, analysis of what's going on in the world. And that's it have for today. Every, everybody uh, be safe out there.